All right. Progress in public housing is not only judged by what the majority has achieved, it is also measured by whether citizens with the least means are able to live in security, peace and dignity. Words of wisdom from our guest today, Dr. Ng Kok Ho, a senior research fellow at the LKY School of Public Policy. Welcome everyone. Uh, good evening for this very special live Tetare episode, episode 62. And we have, uh, I know, I know the, the ones online cannot see me, but we have a very diverse audience. So you have to take my word for it and it's full house as well. Uh, there's no empty seat. Oh, there's one empty seat. So almost, almost full house. Uh, thank you everyone for being here. So we will be discussing this book that I hope all of you will get. They told us to move the quota to Cassia. Uh, it is edited by uh, Dr. Ng and his team and we'll delve into that. Actually, you know, today I'm a bit nervous about home because for the first time in a week, I am away from my phone for one hour. And I'm afraid that after this, there's only going to be 86 or 85 members of parliament left in this, in this hour. But hopefully not, hopefully not. And if such a thing happens, please don't inform me. I, wanna, I need to concentrate on this. Okay, so my first question to you is, right, Koko, why did you write this book? Uh, what, what was the motivation? Uh, what were the research questions? And basically, what prompted you and your team to do this? Thanks, Walid. Uh, it's very nice to be here with you. Uh, this evening and also very nice to be in this location uh, it's very meaningful that we're back again at the site that um, inspired us to put this book together um, the project really started because um, well we have to first talk about the context of Dakota this place is unique right? um, it's unique in the sense that uh, it is a very old estate it was built by the Singapore Improvement Trust in 1958 so it's pre-HDB so before the Housing and Development Board it was before independence, so the estate is older than Singapore, the nation. So architecturally, it was interesting. So it always, I think, uh, provided an interesting kind of marker of Singapore's urban development. So of course, that, that makes it interesting. But at the same time, and that was my personal interest, is that Dakota Crescent uh, it was a social housing estate. That means it was a public rental housing estate not sold flats, uh, all, the ten all, all the residents were tenants who rented their flats from HDB, lower income tenants. And at the time when we first thought about the book, I had been studying uh, social housing for a while. So this was a very rich case. And then I met uh, a group of fantastic young people known as the Cassier Resettlement Team. Right? One of them will appear at uh, one of the future events uh, here at Dakota Dreams. And there was a group of young volunteers, CRT, they were helping the older residents relocate. After the announcement that uh, Dakota would be redeveloped, all the residents had to move, they realized the residents needed a lot of help. Um, I, and I thought that was very interesting. Uh, that, well, first of all, relocation is something that happens throughout uh, all the, the history of public housing in Singapore. It constantly happens. We're constantly tearing down housing, building new housing, and in the course of that, people have to move. I thought it very interesting that the services to help people move should have to be provided by volunteers. Right? I thought that was very interesting. So we ended up making this book. Um, it has three layers, so we did it uh, like, a, like a conversation. Um, CRT had done uh, some interviews with the residents. We selected nine of those interviews. We turned them into transcripts. 
And then I asked nine of the CRT volunteers, most of them young people, to write a short uh, personal review.
So there was a policy where over 20 years, from the 80s to 2000s, not a single new social housing unit was built, but demolition continued. So diminish the stock. So housing is like this, right? If you don't top up with new stock, the existing stock, it ages. At the same time, another key decision, there used to be three-room rental flats, but a decision was made to bifurcate the housing system. Only smaller flats to rent, one and two room, larger flats were reserved for sale. So in the end, today we end up actually with two housing systems, not one, right? And what is the logic? The logic is that if you want to encourage people to buy, then make the alternative more difficult to access and less desirable. That was the campaign, right? Product differentiation, right? Um, but of course, there's practical consequences. It means that the current stock of social housing, over time, is fewer, smaller, older. The flats for sale, more plentiful, newer, larger. That means that larger households who need social housing won't meet their space needs. And because the stock is so limited, it sometimes both justifies and requires some irrational allocation processes, like uh, very low income limits, requiring singles to share a flat and so on. The basic logic is uh, you don't want to make it an attractive option because you want people to do the other thing. Right. So I think Dakota is one of the last uh, remaining clusters of social housing. After that time, all social housing is thinly and widely spread. One or two blocks within Seoul Flats, you won't see a cluster of 15 blocks like this anymore. I think the largest one, if I'm not wrong, is in Jalan Kuku. That's it. So the demolition of this estate is a sharp reminder of how far this campaign of residualizing social housing has come. Right. Thank you. You know, over the weekend, I went to uh, Bedok Corner and one of the things I saw was on the tables, interestingly, there were ads about how HDB is affordable. I've only seen it in lifts before this, but I saw it at Bedok Corner on the tables, right? Okay, that's a separate matter, usage of, well, prudent usage of government resources, but I, I find it strange that you have to tell people something is affordable. People will know whether it's affordable. You, you, and this is something you cannot, uh, you cannot convince people out of. Right? If people buy and they know it's uh, some people here are renting houses, they know how crazy the uh, the market rate is now. So would you say this one is off off script already? Okay, so it's Instagram live. So would you say that is the PAP's biggest mistake to turn housing into an asset? Uh, because it seems to me it's very difficult, almost impossible to reverse this mistake, whereas others are possibly reversible. Well, when people ask what are the reasons for pushing home ownership, right? Oh, Bing Huat has his theories, right? That, I mean, politically, uh, Lee Kuan Yew himself has said that he has noticed that in the West, uh, homeowners tend to vote more conservatively. The idea that if you have a mortgage to pay, you don't want to rock the boat. Scholars have also suggested it promotes uh, labor peace. If you have to pay a mortgage, you won't protest or go on strike because you don't want to lose your job. Right? So there are political reasons. I think for this particular government, uh, on hindsight, uh, housing is probably the greatest monument to their so-called track record. It's visible. You live in it. You walk past it. It's everywhere. Right? Um, so, so the irony is that for something that we are so familiar with, that we live in, that's part of our lives, we constantly need to be told how to feel about it, right? as Walid has pointed out. That is, that is very strange. Right? Something we'll return to again, that the policy of public housing is, is in a way 
propped up by a, a very thick, rich set of policy narratives right, about what it is, uh, about whether we should celebrate it, about what is good, uh, and what is bad uh, about public housing. It is not entirely irreversible. Maybe we'll get a chance to talk about that later. But speaking of narratives, before I forget, from time to time we hear kind of prominent people saying that, you know, I used to grow up in rental housing. Oh, yeah. Rex to Riches story, yeah. Right, Rex yeah. to Riches, right. In election campaigns, you hear it, <laughs> prominent people say, I grew up in uh, rental housing. But why do they say it? I think they say it because rental housing today connotes hardship, right? So they say it because of what rental housing uh, is today. It's both to, I suppose, proof of commonness, proof of humanity, as well as to justify privilege, right? I've, I've had to work hard to, to come this way. But I suggest that when we hear these statements, we check the historical timing. Right? It's quite important. So if somebody in his 60s says they grew up in rental housing, they would have been a kid in the 1960s. In the 1960s, uh, fact check, uh, in 1965, 96% of flats were rental housing. 96% of flats in 1965 were rental housing. To say that you grew up in the 60s in a rental flat, you are not remarkable. You are not special. right? you are just like everybody else, right? And if that prominent person also happens to be a politician, a policy maker, who should in fact share some responsibility, right, for turning rental housing to what it is today, to then instead turn around and wear it like a badge of honor, frankly, feels a bit cynical to me. Okay, thank you. So, uh, you said it's not irreversible. I hope we, we get to that. So what about, uh, so today the rental flat, you know the new BTOs, there is a rental flat, uh, sorry, a social housing flat uh, block in between, and that is to encourage, you know, like EIP is to encourage racial mixing, this is to encourage uh, class mixing. So, does that alleviate some of the concerns you have? Yeah. Um, this is an interesting experiment. They started a few years ago with two blocks, I think mixing uh, social housing units, so rental flats, with sole units. I think HGB was a bit nervous, so they started mixing within the block, but not on the same floor. Right? Uh, they were afraid they couldn't sell the flats, right? if people came to know. And they were very cautious in how they advertise it. You cannot not tell people, uh, but you are afraid that if you advertise it too loudly, you, you end up with flats you can't sell. So it's the, the fear of nimbyism, right? flat value and, and, and all of that. I find it... Uh, an awkward thing to talk about because sometimes people say that mixing is good uh, when they say that they mean that somehow by hanging around richer people it will be good for lower income tenants that somehow your goodness of character will rub off on me that of course is I mean it's completely wrong-headed right that somehow mixing will elevate uh, people in lower income situations I don't think mixing per se will do anything to people's hardships right in fact, I think putting the, the wealth gap in people's face uh, might, might, be an, might be an issue. I'm more concerned about what it means for the tenants. I think if we really wanted to flatten out or, or narrow the differences between the experiences of homeowners uh, and tenants, we need to change them. So this is where we can do some reversing. Currently, social housing is so residualized, so targeted, that it can only allow through into the system people who are most severely disadvantaged. This system of narrow targeting exaggerates or accentuates the differences between homeowners and tenants. 
if you blur the lines, if you enlarge the social housing sector, tenants wouldn't be so exceptional anymore. And in a sense, you, mixing is not so necessary. Right? So for me, the issue has always been the narrowness of the targeting, because if you have only 5% of your housing stock, 5 or 6% now, rental housing, the history was from 100% social housing to 5 to 6% now. It's a complete flip. Um, if you only have 5 to 6% of your social housing stock available, you naturally will select the people who are at the extreme end of society. You, in a way, you prove your bias and stereotype. Right? So, but wouldn't the social mixing do that? Maybe not, not in the end that will rub off your kindness. In the first place, that's not true, right? There's no guarantee that richer people are nicer. A lot of times they are not. Uh, but maybe it's the other way around, right? It makes a person, uh, well, it exposes you to different people from socioeconomic backgrounds, and maybe you don't have that level of suspicion towards them or that level of snobbery to them. You think that, that would work? I think that's possible, you're right. Through day-to-day -day experiences, it always helps, right? The best way to debunk stereotypes is to know somebody. Right? Yeah. Uh, although, having said that, I had this experience because there is this... Uh, social housing block in my new neighborhood. So one of my acquaintances or friends, uh, she stays around the area and she works in a social organization. And when she was talking to me, she actually said, hey, you know that, that place uh, near, our, near our house, right? There's a lot of crime there. You know the ghetto place in our... She actually said that. Uh, so there's no guarantee that I, I, I do think the intent is good and I think the benefits are way the cost. But along with that, I think there needs to be a constant challenging of the narrative. You cannot just have that and then leave people be. I think you need to constantly challenge the narrative. Okay, so you alluded to this, my next question. You alluded to the one of the answers already, which is to make it less restrictive. Right? How else can we make housing better in Singapore? Mm. Um, I think the home ownership campaign needs to be rethought. Because we, we don't want to, there's no need to roll back home ownership. Uh, but I think home ownership works best when it's left to people as a matter of choice. Right? So you give people a range of options, people know when they're ready to buy a flat. If younger couples are not ready, they want to settle down but can't afford to buy a flat, then they rent one. Right? You trust people to know when it's ready. And how do you know that? You provide them a range of choices. Uh, that means larger rental flats, for which you can collect slightly higher rent. Still subsidized, sub-market, but slightly higher rent. A variety of flat sizes for different family sizes, so you at least meet their housing needs. So that when people are ready, they will buy. When they're not ready, they don't get punished. Right? Uh, that, I think, is, is, uh, would be a good start. Okay. A lot of young people nodding along. Uh, I think anyone who's looking for a house or just bought a house uh, would understand it. But to push you a little bit on that, right? So what about those who have already owned homes? They would be up in arms, right? Because that would affect the value of the. Yeah. Earlier on, you mentioned that the public home ownership system is so entrenched in our social policies, social welfare system that it's impossible to uproot it. Quite true. We don't have to uproot it, we can slowly roll it back. And the problem is this entanglement with retirement. Right. Yeah. Of course, people are upset if the housing that they bought has depreciated in value, but they're mainly upset because you told them it's their nest egg for retirement. So if we were to say, you're exactly right, if we enlarge the rental system, there'll be less demand to purchase. Rental, the, the housing market may not be as buoyant. Flat owners may be a little bit upset, but I think it will help if we reform the retirement income system. 
and not make it premised on housing ownership, which in any case has always been biased towards people who can own housing. And not all people retire at the point of retirement are able to, to own housing. There are many older people whose uh, pension system is essentially their children. Right? They live with their children, their children support them. Uh, home ownership is, is not universal. Thank you. Um, so, you mentioned in your book that the liberal welfare state is individualizing, and I agree with you. However, if I were to just you know to challenge you on this point, so what about it being prone to abuse, right? And one of the one of the reasons I don't know reasons or excuses in the West, for instance, uh, where the social welfare state is is entrenched, and one of the justifications given for why they are really anti-immigration is because, oh, they are coming here to get our welfare, right? And they don't contribute and they just uh, they just leech off the rest of us, right? So would you say that, I mean, Lee Kuan, you also talked about this, right? We cannot, we must, there must always be the incentive to, to work. And that's why unemployment insurance or minimum wage, although there are forms of it already implemented, uh, was for the longest time from, word for the longest time from the point, right? So, would you say that there is some merit to that argument? And if so, how would we overcome that? Hmm. So, there's often this logic that if social welfare is too generous, it takes away people's, um, well, first, work ethic, right? And then it's, it's inferior to competition, and that's a healthy way to meet your needs. But that's the narrative. But, I mean, we've, um, we've been doing... Sort of, me and my colleagues, right? In, in all the many years that we've been doing research, talking to people, especially say in the minimum income standards project, where we ask people, what do you want? What is an acceptable way of life? People never say that, I want to compete, I want to win. Right? They want to meet their basic needs. They want to live well, they want freedom, they want to be independent. Nobody needs competition. So this idea that competition or market logics is the most natural, uh, it is not. It is not natural, it's not what people want, it's not the only way to organize social welfare. There are policy decisions, right? And, and I think these are policy decisions often based on a faulty model of human motivation um, and a unquestioned faith in the fairness of competition. It pays too little attention to entrenched privilege and so on. So this idea of abuse that if welfare is too generous, people will abuse it actually has very long roots. Uh, we can trace it back to uh, 19th century England when they were debating how to reform the poor law. They were in a similar dilemma, right? They were thinking, well, we want to help people in poverty, but if you do too much, then you make them lazy. So they settled on what they call the principle of less eligibility. Right? Here, eligible doesn't mean qualified. It means like desirable, right? Eligible, bachelor, kind of eligible. So principle of less eligibility. And their logic is this. You want to help people, but you want to be careful that they don't become lazy. So what do you do? The principle is that the living standard of the person on welfare must be poorer to the poorest person in the workforce. So the best standard of living in the social welfare system must be inferior to uh, the living standards of the poorest working person. So you separate it, leave a gap. So to make sure there is no incentive for the lowest paid worker to go to welfare because that is poorer, right? That logic is very strong. And based on that logic, they set up workhouses 
Uh, sometimes you see it in Victorian BBC dramas. They put people needing help in workhouses and they create meaningless work for them. They have to crush bones to turn into fertilizer. They have to break stones, plate straw, do all kinds of things. And of course, they are not treated well. The idea is that you both want to help, but you want your help to somehow also be repellent to poor people. You want to keep them away. Right? So it's meant to be a selection mechanism so that only the truly desperate will come to your system. You are in no danger of abuse. But what that usually means is that the people in the workhouse lead a very horrific life. Right? And we see this logic. This is not just 1800s England. We see this logic even today. What I said about social housing, principle of less eligibility. If you want people to buy flats, make sure your alternative is of a lower quality. It's the same for social assistance. You want people to stay in the workforce, make sure your Comcare social assistance never pays anything close to wages, right? So that there is a clear gap. If you want welfare, well, then it's as much as high, maximum is half of lowest wages. That's why you see this clear gap between progressive wage at the basic level uh, and social assistance. But what it means is that the people on the assistance, live, you don't leave anyone out of poverty, you trap them in insecurity uh, and indignity. And actually, there is a reverse dynamic right, that analysts have spotted, which is that when you keep social assistance very low, you give employers no incentive to increase wages. Right? So the lower you, you push your assistance, the lower the lowest wage will be. Mm. Same logic, right? I can pay you a dollar more than social assistance and you'll still work for me because if you quit, you get a dollar less. So it's a race to the bottom. So in countries with very meager social assistance, they also have a problem with low wage. What about if you have minimum wage alongside that? Ah. So if minimum wage is $16 per hour, so unemployment benefit is 10 or 13 or maximum 14 would that work? A minimum wage uh, often is motivated by a different logic, huh? is to prop up uh, a wage so that people can meet their basic needs. I think that would be a very interesting experiment. right? We, in liberal welfare states like ours, we are, we are under the impression that people are flocking to social assistance offices or they do not. Huh? We have interviewed many people who say that they need it but they don't want to, partly because they want to keep trying, partly because of the shame. That's how the system works. It's still the Victorian workhouse system. So um, people are not flocking to social assistance. Anyway, the thing they get is, is, is not enough. I, I think if our progressive wage model, uh, by word for minimum wage, the different in some important ways, really takes off and works properly, uh, we don't know yet, right? parts of it are very new, uh, it will be interesting to see what happens to a social assistance system that gives so little. Yeah, it may become very irrelevant. Okay, thank you. Just a reminder to everyone, you are free to ask your questions online as well. I have a phone with me, so feel free to type in your questions you want. You can just raise your hands or you can make a comment can disagree with us and argue with us as well, uh, argue with him. And I also see in the audience there are some uh, very important people, some people I would like to have on next time. I don't want to point fingers or mention Yuyan's name. Uh, but my, 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 my next question is, I actually read this in the book, right? In uh, This is what inequality looks like. And I've also heard this many, many times, many, many times, including from some of my own students, which is, Poor people make bad choices, right? So they are in the rental flat, uh, they are in social housing uh, because, well, they didn't work hard enough at one point in time in their lives or now they are not rolling their sleeves up and working hard enough. Uh, so how would you respond to that? Mm. Ah, tricky question. Uh, we can approach it in a few different ways. One is to say that 
what appears to be bad choices uh, actually makes a lot of sense if we are in the same shoes, right? So what are typical examples people like to bring up? For example, stay-at-home moms, right? So you are a social housing uh, family, right? You live in social housing. Uh, clearly, you need income. So why is the mom not going out to work, right? But the logic is very simple. For somebody with lower skills, uh, in a system, in a labor force that lacks wage protection, they make very little working. But they will need to arrange for care while they're at work, right? The cost of care is higher than what they can bring in. Why would you go to work? Plus, you get to take care of your children yourselves, which is very important to a lot of parents. And I think they, they should be able to choose that, right? So doesn't make sense to work. Uh, what is another bad choice we, we sometimes hear people point out, which is why don't lower-skilled workers go for training? So many training courses available, right? If you attend training, then quickly you become more competitive in the workforce, your wages will improve. There are many reasons why lower-income workers, uh, lower workers don't, don't go for training. Lower-wage workers are often also doing insecure jobs, on-call work. They're not on contract. So if there is work, it may be mover job, a cleaner job. If there is work, the company will call you. If there isn't, you sit at home, you don't get paid. There is no fixed monthly salary. Under these circumstances, you can't take leave. There's no such thing as training leave or even personal leave to attend training. You are just waiting for the next call to go for work because you may not get a call every day. Would you go for training? I wouldn't. You are having difficulty bringing food home. It makes a lot of sense not to go for training. And then we have a range of other things, right? People like to point out uh, when we did a minimum income standard study, why are birthday gifts important for children, birthday parties? People like to target these things that look like luxuries, right? But I mean, the context is that in low-income households, there are many uh, children's uh, requests that the parent cannot fulfill, but there are a few they will try to fulfill. Uh, and they often may be a big birthday party. The rest of the year, they have to keep saying no, right? Uh, which is not easy, right, for parents to do. So there is one big birthday party. It makes a whole lot of difference in the context of their life. So that is one, one way to respond to it, which is they're not really bad choices. But the other thing to say is, of course, that everybody makes good choices and bad choices, right? So I know rich and powerful people make a lot of bad choices, right? We don't need examples. From the, they make plenty of bad choices, but maybe they have more control over the, the exposure of their bad choices until they have no control, right? So part of it, I mean, sometimes with colleagues, we talk about this. We pay a lot of attention to poorer people including researchers, uh, media researchers, of course, government does. In society in general, we put them kind of under a bit of surveillance and scrutiny, right? And rich people very rarely get studied, mainly because they don't respond to supermarket vouchers as tokens, right? So they won't do it. They're very hard to find, very hard to recruit for research, but it's really unfair. The amount of scrutiny we put lower-income people on, and you have to justify every decision. If you scrutinize my life, you will find I make plenty of stupid decisions, right? Thank you. So, wouldn't you say that that probably, and the earlier point you mentioned that, you know, ministers like to mention, I was from rental flat, two-room flat, whatever, the direct to riches story, right? And, and it's not really about uplifting, right? It's also, it's also, it comes from a place of arrogance, but which stems from the uh, unflinching belief in meritocracy, right? right? So, if I work hard, I made it, right? Then, you can work hard and you can make it as well, right? Without, of course, considering your parents, your family background, your friends, your neighbors, whatever it is, right? So, would you say the root of the problem then is this, the belief in meritocracy? Mm -hmm. hey. Today I was just discussing meritocracy with, uh, with a class. Um, 
it's one of those things, right, that um, it's, it has an intuitive appeal and it feels very fair. What can be fairer than rewarding people on the basis of their abilities and effort, right? Except that this is premise that the competition is fair, right? The competition of merit is fair. And it will, it's, it's very hard to make it fair. Of course, it's unfair to different degrees in different societies. Once we pay attention to the starting lines, what people start at different starting lines, right? Um, there was a survey I did among uh, rental uh, tenant households a few years ago. We surveyed 1,000 households. And one of the questions I asked the parents was, what is the highest education you hope your child uh, will uh, will achieve, right? Um, and, and we noticed a pattern. For parents whose children were the youngest, the goals were very high, university, uh, diploma, and so on. But as the children's age increased, this, the expectations came, came down. Came down. Um, by the time they were in primary school, some were saying diploma or ITE. And then when some closer to upper primary, some were saying, I hope they'll finish uh, uh, secondary school and levels, right? Um, the competition really, I mean, the circumstances in which children have to compete currently in the education system sorts out children based on their, the resources they have to begin with at a very, very early stage, right? Once we see that kind of pattern and how people kind of settle into the place, the tracks, uh, that have been set in place for them, right? then meritocracy can feel very hollow. That's, that is the problem. Okay. Thank you so much. That was uh, really comprehensive. So, there is a saying, right? I can't remember, it's one of, the, one of the greats, Mandela or Gandhi, said that the problem with poverty is not just a lack of material welfare. Right? It also strips you of your dignity. Right? Or it can strip you of your dignity. But there was a story in your book uh, of, of this person, this lady, and uh, you guys mentioned that vulnerability existed alongside empowerment for many of these people. Can you explain a little bit? What we discovered when we spoke to the residents uh, in Dakota, as with most of, the, uh, most of what we find in poverty research, is that generally people try very hard. Right? So this image that people are lacking in resilience and so on, it doesn't, it doesn't really match match reality people work very hard uh, people in difficult circumstances have to be very resourceful right during covid when we were interviewing uh, lower income families the way they were rationing groceries it was at the level of if i buy a bigger bag of say potatoes then on the per potato basis is cheaper then i think of dishes to cook uh, which can keep for a long time i think of dishes which are more savory which are more gravy so that you can go with rice better. They were thinking to that level. Then you then if you want something savory, maybe it can be least. So the, there's some uh, some variety, right, for the for the kids' palate and so on. The degree of rationing, goodness, right. Um, people try very hard, uh, and we notice a lot of resilience among the Dakota residents, including helping each other. Some of the families were the, the kids go out and help the older residents and so on, right. So so resilience. It's already there, they already are resilient. I'm also a bit cautious when we talk about resilience uh, because sometimes, I mean, the point is, I want to make is they are already resilient, but sometimes we, make, we frame resilience as if it's the goal of social services and social policy mm -hmm. to make people resilient, as if the lack of that is the reason for poverty. Uh, it's not, you don't have to worry, they are already resilient, right? The, the, 
the problem is the circumstances, right? Uh, that led up to their to their poverty. But every time we we talk about this, we are refocusing the problem on individual kind of moral deficiency and individual responsibility. What you said about stripping people of dignity, um, it is very true. There is a there was a study from very long ago. It's a theoretical framework where a pair of scholars, right, called Ingram and Schneider. I like it very much because it really opened my eyes. Uh, they came up with a framework called the social construction of target populations. It's a very simple theory. They notice that people who have, um, who in the public's eye have a more negative label, and who are politically weaker, tend to be treated overtly in an overtly bad way by policy. So they are saying that social perception and political power determines how policymakers treat you. If you are negatively perceived and politically weak, like lower income people, right? Because you're a minority, right? By definition, you are politically weak. Then you are often subject to overtly bad treatment. If you you have a negative social label, but you are politically powerful. So here, think rich bankers. Huh? Then policymakers may sell you favors, but they do it covertly. Right. So this is a very interesting theory. I thought it also helped me to understand, well, at the time, um, I mean, a few years ago, Trump is the best example, right? What he says loudly about disabled people, about Mexicans, right? Already, Americans have a certain perception of them, and they are politically voiceless in American politics. And we don't even have to look that far. Some of the is we talk about migrant workers overtly, and the way we overtly treat migrant workers in the, during the toughest part of the pandemic, it reminds me of this. Um, when you say stripping people of dignity, um, over the years, periodically, you'll hear policy statements referring to helping rental housing tenants to improve their lives by getting rid of vices like smoking, drinking, drugs, poor parenting. These are policy statements, right? You can Google it. Uh, policymakers openly associating tenants with various vices with no evidence at all. Right? And a few years ago, I found this truly shocking video, which you can look for before they remove it. It's done by CNA. It's called uh, The Lies People Tell. It's a special feature on people seeking, seeking social assistance at uh, SSOs, social service officers. It's an entire video dedicated to telling us that when people seek social assistance, they often lie. Um, I don't know why people want to put out such a video. Mm. I don't understand it. Uh, but it's a huge reminder that you can do this at no political cost. Huh? Uh, it's exactly what those scholars reminded us, how you are treated by policymakers. And of course, when they do that, uh, okay, they think they are kind of capturing public sentiment and turning it on an other group, right? They think they are riding on public sentiment. But of course, when they do that, they are also fanning and encouraging a certain negative public sentiment. It's a very divisive thing to do, and, and we ought to be very, very cautious. That was by CNA, you said? That was by CNA. Okay. Uh, so, I just uh, searched on YouTube, uh, lies people tell. But not okay. now. Now you, have, you should listen to us. <laughs> well, I, I hope CNA, if they do that, then they should, the next documentary idea, we have a CNA person here. Uh, luckily, the camera is not pinned at that person, but uh, the next documentary they do should be the last politician style. Oh, and, and, and I think it's really important. I'm not saying this, I'm not saying this whimsically, right? I, I would be okay if they did that documentary, at the same time do that, the other documentary, right? 
you punch up as much as you punch down, right? And that I think that's good journalism. But if you just do it and avoid the, the more obvious, <laughs> the more interesting thing, right? Then there's a problem somewhere already. And none of them, right? None of them. I mean, they can prove me wrong. None of them will do this documentary. Uh, but anyway, so whose responsibility is it to care then? Right? So how do you balance? Because on one hand, I agree with you about the liberal welfare state. And I think some basic uh, provision, like we never ask, how much do we spend on defense, right? We never ask that question. It's always the most, right? When we spend a little bit only, can, can we balance the budget? When we spend on social welfare, we never ask that. We assume that the defense spending will be there, right? So, so that's a criticism of that kind of thinking, neoliberal or whatever you want to call it, right? Uh, the military-industrial complex in the states. But on the other hand, there is some truth to the criticism, right? Uh, would, would you not say that like if if too much social spending, and especially in, in the West you see uh, more immigration, it leads to societal polarization, and there are some people, not all, but some people who take advantage of the system. So where, I guess that the, the specific question is, where do you balance state care and individual responsibility? This was a huge issue in Brexit, uh, but that, I mean, Brexit happens, happened in a very different context, where they have very porous borders. Uh, because of the EU um, and one of the kind of narratives that are swirling around the Leave campaign was that you have this welfare uh, uh, cheats who come from the less wealthy parts of Europe, they're thinking Eastern Europe, uh, whenever the Brits say this, and they're living off the British welfare state. That anyway, is not that generous by, by European <laughs> standards, but it nonetheless was the narrative of the Leave campaign. But that's the European context and the British context, right? Uh, we nowhere have near the kind of porous borders with our neighbours and our welfare system is not worth risking the trip to enjoy. You probably won't qualify anyway. Even Singaporeans in genuine hardship don't qualify, so no chance, lah, huh? no need to try. Um, so the question about whose responsibility it is to care um, was actually asked in a chapter by my friend and colleague Art Maulot, who is in the front row, so I'm very tempted to pass the mic, but I, but I don't want to lose a friend, so I will try to answer. <laughs> So whose responsibility is it to provide care? I was asking that context in the question of older residents in Dakota who are living alone and find it very difficult to just live on social assistance. Um, the, there are a few things we can say about care. Right? Care in Singapore, I mean, we can think about care as uh, looking after people, right? And looking after people, interpersonal care. And in Singapore, currently, uh, predominantly care tends to be informal, uh, gendered, uh, a lot of it is unnoticed, unrecognized, and therefore uncompensated, mainly done by women who don't get paid for it. Uh, we have a huge dependence, therefore, on people's personal resources, including time and sacrifice income, or market solutions, I'm thinking uh, foreign domestic workers. Right? Uh, the state infrastructure for care is not adequate yet. Right? Uh, we don't have enough care workers, um, and so um, currently because of the huge dependence on personal resources and market solutions, care is a domain of steep inequality. Some people get very good standards of care because they can afford it, and if you don't, uh, then, then you don't get the care that you need. So what do, we think, what do I think we need to do? It's a matter of degree. Huh? We are nowhere near kind of the irresponsible social spending kind of extent. Um, we have a long way to go in terms of giving proper uh, recognition 
to care work and to carers, and therefore better state support. Uh, in concrete terms, it means uh, leave, care services, as well as some forms of compensation. Right? Aware has of course been talking about this. Some sort of care allowance. Right? So, some, I mean, I know some Singaporeans are not used to thinking, why should I pay somebody for taking care of a family member? But they had sacrificed income, and usually the day are women. And when they sacrifice income, they're also sacrificing pension savings, so retirement savings. Why shouldn't they be compensated, right? So uh, it's not a dream. There are countries that have care allowances or pension top-ups for people who stay at home to provide care. Um, so I want to emphasize this. The argument is that sometimes uh, in welfare states like ours, that if you ask the state to care, you're giving up, you're abdicating your responsibility towards our family members. But no. Social policy, by pooling all our resources and then turning it into services that everybody needs, is a collective act of care. In fact, one of the best definitions I've come across for social welfare is that it is an act of care towards strangers. Social welfare is an act of care towards strangers. So pooling our resources through taxes, turning that into services that are universal, is, is a very important form of care. Okay. Thank you. There's a comment by Nick that says that when you're talking about social housing, comment is uh, on IG Live, uh, it reminds him of the trampoline that SM Taman, uh, future President Taman, was, was talking about. Uh, the, you, you remember that when he was answering the question, do you believe in uh, a safety net? And he says he believes in a trampoline instead of a safety net. Uh, so yeah, maybe, uh, maybe that makes sense. Now it's 8.45, so I shall open it up to the floor, to our live audience. Anyone? Yes. Arun, thank you so much. So, uh, you just uh, state the question, then I'll repeat your question for the audience. Okay, so the question is what can be done to encourage uh, social mixing and he mentioned three inter-ethnic, international uh, and inter-SES mixing. Uh, is housing the main tool or should we look at others including education? Right? I, that's oh, a question. Did, did, did I get it correctly? Yeah. I think we, we generally appreciate the argument for social mixing. Right? It's good especially for kids growing up to, to get to know people, make friends with people who are different from themselves in all sorts of ways, right? Um, that's, that's an important thing. So schools, school is obviously an important site for that to happen. Housing, because it's day-to-day, -day, people talk about national service, although that's only for men, and so on. So all, all that's great, um, but when it comes to these issues, I still generally tend to return to that argument, right? That if your inequality wasn't so bad, you wouldn't be so worried about mixing. If your kids weren't so different, they didn't come from such starkly uneven backgrounds that they couldn't relate to each other's lives, you wouldn't have a problem of mixing, right? right. So, uh, yes, mixing is important, and certainly we don't want parts of Singapore to be kind of uh, gated communities for the privilege, right? So all that's bad, uh, but I think we need to go back to the fundamentals, right? That if society wasn't so unequal, it makes mixing kind of a more issue. So the, the root cause is inequality. I remember, I, I'll get to art in a while. So I remember this, maybe 10 or 
11 years ago, I attended a forum, then a professor from a university, I shall not name, uh, he was proudly uh, talking about this incident to show his multi-ethnic credentials. He said his 8-year-old daughter, 8 or 9-year-old daughter, uh, when he invited an Indian friend over, so the 8 or 9-year-old daughter, the first thing she did was touch the guy's hand. Uh, but he didn't say anything. So when uh, when the guest left, then he asked the doctor, why, why, why was that the first thing you, you did? And he said, oh, I wanted to see whether it was pain. And then he used that as an example, you know, oh, and I had to educate her. Right? But at eight or nine, right, they probably don't think that un unless they've been fed a lot of <laughs> nasty things at home, right? And I thought that was, that was pretty embarrassing. But it goes to, basically, is the racial equivalent of what you're saying. Right? If we didn't have the problem of racism or racial privilege, majority privilege, or whatever it is, right, then probably that would not happen. Right? You do not need to account for all of these other things. But having said that, right, uh, a safe government would say, right, oh, we cannot count on the goodness of human nature. Right? We need institutions. So, yes, work on that, but we have the EIP, we have, right, social housing in every HDB flat. Do you think that would be a fair way for the government to think? Um, repeat that, that last question again. Repeat that. So uh, a good government, or a safe government, so we cannot leave it to chance, we cannot leave it to the goodness, goodness of human nature. So we need to have these institutions in case those things do not work. Well, I, I, actually, I agree. You cannot leave it to people's good natures. You depend on good policies, right? Not good policies to provide mixing, but good qualities to tackle inequality, right? But this argument is sometimes switched around at people's convenience, you know? When it comes to tackling certain social problems, the solution is to encourage goodwill. So in, when it comes to the homelessness issue, for example, the policy position now is that more people should volunteer and be kinder towards homeless people. Not, not that that is not important, right? These sort of messages need to be responded to very carefully. Those, I mean, asking people to be kind is one of the most important things we can ask of people, but it is not a solution to homelessness, right? If walking up to somebody, speaking them to, to them, speaking to them nicely, does not give them housing. It does not prevent the next person from becoming homeless, right? So sometimes, so this argument sometimes is switch around, right? When we don't want to move on policy, then we say, ask people to be nicer to each other. In a way, sometimes when we don't want to talk about institutional racism, we we say it's all casual racism. Thank you. I'm very tempted to. <laughs> but okay, we have we have asked question, Karen. Just a question. I mean, inheritance creates wealth for the next generation. A lot of the housing policy revolves around HDB assets, but you know that's not good because of economic issues. So why do the people control the debt for the people? Oh, so, so the question is, why don't we have the 99 or whatever it is limit for condos, bungalows, because this uh, reduces the chance of inherited meritocracy? This is a very Marxist question. <laughs> Well, so I, I didn't deflect the question to Art, but Art asked me a question instead. Right? So never trust your friends, is the lesson. Um, I think it's an interesting suggestion. Mm, 
there's no reason why we shouldn't consider it. Although I must say that inherited wealth comes in more forms than just housing uh, and property. There are so many. You know, there are so many ways in which uh, we still haven't fully explored the potential of taxing the rich. Uh, there is a lot more room for that. That being maybe one of the suggestions that we, we should explore. Yeah. Interesting. Anyone else? Yes. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So I recently attended a conference right by the city of St. Martin Chi Hao and uh, a couple of scholars and the CEOs of Enterprise and they talk about the issue of resilience and they did talk about resilience as well. But to them, they talk about resilience something we need to constantly inculcate ourselves. So my question is that given that people who are like very politically franchised in Singapore who are powerful like both economically and politically if that is the narrative that they have, then how do we then achieve the incidents? Like the, like the, how do we detach our social welfare right from in cultivating incidents instead of like getting them off the social welfare in Singapore if that's their identity? Sorry, so the question is because the elites have an idea of resilience, it's so ingrained, how do we move away from that and move towards a more uh, liberal welfare state? How do we, how do we, uh, how do we restructure our social welfare system that instead of doing resilience, we, we put people to be independent from the welfare, the welfare uh, organizations? Oh, so how do we make people be independent? So make people more resilient, that's right. Like, they are resilient now because they have uh, welfare services given to them. Then they are resilient because they like, you know, make do with the resources. Ah, okay. So, so is the long run goal essentially to get them off the, the social welfare services? Huh. I, I think the long term goal is that we shouldn't think of social welfare as social welfare. We should think of it as public services. These are all public services, right? School is a public service. Hospitals are a public service. Income support when someone is unemployed is public service. Uh, universal income support for retired older people is public service. There are not social welfare, right? So, I mean, over time, especially in our context, the liberal welfare state, we've had all sorts of negative labels attached to the welfare state, right? And that is part of how it works, right? Remember, welfare must be repellent, principle of less eligibility. Uh, that package comes with some shame, right? So think about it before you come apply, right? That's all part of the package that, that is offered to you. Um, but that is not a natural state of affairs, right? We think that getting welfare is to receive handouts, is to be a free rider, is to be dependent. The opposite is to be self-reliant. No? And there are alternatives, right? We're not speaking in dreams. Eh? Um, in the more social democratic welfares of Northern Europe, people pay very high taxes, and then they depend heavily on public services. Free university education, free childcare, who doesn't like, right? So here we often like to say, we preempt the public sentiment by saying that, oh no, people will never pay, will want to pay that high taxes. But actually in surveys in Northern Europe, those welfare systems are very popular. Even in the UK, which is a fairly liberal welfare state, people are very attached to the NHS. Extremely popular. They want it to be well-funded. So both parties, even the conservatives, cannot touch the NHS. So where there are universal services and people don't think of it as charity, People enjoy it, right? Because it provides. So it's not about resilience uh, on an individual level, right? So much as seeing social services as public services, and there's a huge difference. One of the things we learn from the Dakota residents is that in a liberal welfare state like ours, social housing is seen as an act of charity, and so you are not so much a resident or a citizen; you are a recipient of charity. There was one resident. An older woman, we interviewed her to ask her uh, what, if you could tell the MP, I remember the interview was, if you could tell the MP 
uh, what should change uh, or what should be different about uh, the way relocation is done and so on. What would you ask of the MP? Then she said, oh, we cannot say, we cannot say. <laughs> then the interviewer said, no, but what if you could? It was a young volunteer, CRT, very persistent. He said, what if you could try to trick her by asking the hypothetical? Then she said, no, 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 I cannot say. Then she insisted, but if, if you could, what would you tell the uh, MP? She said, they are government, we are only citizens, we cannot say anything. But if I could, then she went on to speak an entire paragraph about the kind of living environment that she likes, the kind of neighborliness that she enjoys in Dakota, even the trees, the courtyard and so on. She has very specific ideas about what is a good place to live in. But she felt she couldn't say. Because in this system, in our system, liberal welfare state, the recipients of some social services, the targeted ones, they are made to feel like recipients of charity. And if you are a recipient of charity, you have only one approved sentiment, right? And that is gratitude, right? You don't critique. You don't ask for more, you don't give feedback. If you are given food in, in us, I say, if you are given food, donated food rations that you don't want to eat, you cannot say anything. You better just keep quiet and keep everything because otherwise you will look ungrateful. Right? So that's the reason why services that are very targeted, they are not universal, they are made to feel like charity, they are often very poor services. Universal services that go out to the whole population, they tend to be good services. And it's not a crazy idea, right? Even the most ardent of the free market philosophers or activists or advocates would admit that there are some things you can't leave to the market, right? Like defense, building roads, right? The question is where do we where do we stop or where do we start, right? And healthcare. I always find that, that argument about oh if you know the model has an argument, right? So if you have insurance you are less likely to lock your car as opposed to if you don't have insurance, right? People don't think that about health, right? It's not as if, oh, it's free, so I should go to the hospital, don't take care of my health, right? It, nobody thinks like that about health. At the very least, health. So I don't understand why that has not taken place, at least at least for that. But okay, I, I saw a, a hand as well, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the question is, underlying this discussion is the discourse of scarcity, right? So we must be prudent with our resources. At the same time, it's not just a discourse because Singapore is small, right? So there are obvious physical limitations. So how would you respond to the discourse of scarcity? Yeah, you know, we are such a long way uh, away from a kind of a, a, a mindlessly spending and, and mindlessly generous uh, welfare state. That, that we really don't have, I don't think there are any legitimate reasons to worry about scarcity. I mean, again, I, I don't want to appear like I'm a kind of populist or make, <laughs> making, making fun of people who are already having a hard time. But some years ago, so we, we don't need to name names, a policymaker went pressed to raise the rates of uh, Comcare social assistance. The younger ones in the audience may not remember, but I think the older ones will. The people asking if the rates of social assistance can be raised by $30, $60. Uh, I don't remember the details. Do search in Hansard. Huh? I'm not trying to fake you. Search in Hansard for yourselves. Um, and his response to, to that was no. What do you mean it's not enough? 
do you want to eat in a coffee shop, hawker center? What do you know? No, let me get this right. Hawker center, food court, or restaurant, right? We are talking about social assistance at the time. There was, I think, about a few hundred dollars, and the push was to increase it by tens of dollars, and that was the the response, right? So it is more a narrative. It has no basis in reality, right? That sort of assistance do not allow people who receive it to live to live the kind of lifestyles that is described in the very rhetorical and and disingenuous response. Uh, we are very very far away from that. I I do think, of course, resources are important. All responsible governments must do the proper job of costing for social services, and that is the problem. Where is the costing for a different model of social welfare that is slightly more generous, a slightly larger social housing estate? You you very rarely get very serious responses. When MPs in Parliament ask for social housing to be expanded and so on, you get a, a response is, "Oh, we are a small country and we must manage scarce resources." Right? I think when we begin to hear serious answers with proper costing, right? People doing their due diligence before reporting back, then we can have this serious discussion about scarcity. And and I always feel like uh, change policy change is always impossible until it happens, right? And then the previous justifications all go out of the window, or people just forget to mention that, right? Oh, you cannot cannot increase tax until it's increased, right? And oh, you cannot have a minimum wage until you have the progressive wage model, right? You can always that, and usually, usually there will always be some political development that causes a rethinking <laughs> in the policy decision, right? Uh, we have it's one hour and one minute already, but I we can go three four more minutes. Yeah, okay. So uh, anyone else has a question, please. Yeah. So the question is an unnamed politician, so many unnamed politicians today, yeah. so an unnamed politician said that the best welfare you can give someone is a job, so how would you respond to that? We've been, I mean the last few years we've uh, done a bit of work on uh, well, work, right? conditions of work, we've looked specifically at uh, gig work, old gigs, new gigs, right? platform gigs as well as the older kind of freelancing work. We've also looked at people uh, in low income households during COVID like I mentioned. And I must say it was really very sobering to find out how poor the quality of work often is at the bottom of the wage distribution. Right? We haven't really seriously had a discussion about quality of work yet. This is something our unions should really be talking about. Right? We're right now on a model of work any work. Right? So in, in the welfare literature we say this, this is the approach of work any work. Any work will be better for you than no work. Not necessarily. If the work is bad for your dignity, doesn't pay you enough for your basic needs, and puts you in at risk of accidents, it is not better than not doing work. Right? And anyway, that's that's quite a that's not a sincere response to, to, to what kind of work is serious. Right? There is already a lot of international research on quality of work. What is decent work? It means decent work conditions. It means some sort of autonomy and control. There must be element of choice. There must be room for, for learning and develop skill development. And of course, it must meet all your basic needs. There are so many jobs right now, casual work, on-call work, short contract work, that do not meet any of these criteria for, for good jobs. Right? I think if we are serious about our tripartism, we should look at the conditions of work. Right? Otherwise, we can't say that any work 
is good work. How, how would we do that when the NTUC is not a conventional trade union? Because you mentioned tripartism. And it seems like what you just mentioned is the domain of trade unions. So Singapore is a bit of a strange country. So I had to explain this, repeat myself several times when speaking to a colleague uh, from the UK to explain how the union here works. Is it, sorry again, <laughs> who, who hates your union? I explained, say, no, 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 it cannot be. Are you sure? I'm very, very sure who leads our union. Right? So it's tripartism. It happened for historical reasons that we, we can all find out. Uh, and it has its strengths and, 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 and problems, right? Strengths is, of course, labor peace. Not to be taken lightly, right? Because uh, strikes and labor yeah. disruptions is, is hurtful to, to everybody, both the workers as well as the rest of society. So not to be taken lightly. Um, but on the other hand, uh, strong lobbying is equally important. So I think we should all kind of be very focused on whether our current tripartism works properly for us. And if it doesn't, then, then we need to say something, right? And that's related to, if, if Wallet doesn't mind me uh, doing a small plug, which is that um, there, are, there are spaces to, to talk that is outside of formal institutional channels. Right? Individual citizens cannot change institutions. We cannot change the constitution of our unions. But you can uh, come to independent spaces like this. Right? Uh, that's the role of independent publishers, independent media, like Wallet's podcast, independent spaces like this bookshop and of conversations, right? One of the definitions of care, when we say care is to care for somebody, but it also means to take an interest in, right? To care about an, an, an issue. And that sort of care, being interested in an issue, mobilizing, getting connected with other people, it's a very important form of, form of care. And the plug that I said I was going to make was that we'll talk more about this, right? Strategies of advocacy and activism in an upcoming book by Ethos Books called The Art of Advocacy. It's edited by Constance uh, and Margaret, right? uh, Margaret Thomas and Constance Singham, and it features uh, many uh, activists that I admire, like Alfian Saad, uh, Sharon George, Walid, uh, SG Climate Rally, and, and Kirsten Han. And Kirsten herself uh, is soon to publish uh, a book called The Singapore I Recognize, where she talks about the Singapore that she has discovered through her activism and, and journalism. I mean, Kirsten, as we all know, has a very unique voice. She's it's always deeply compassionate, but staunchly principled. She's my favorite kind of activist, so I'm very excited about that. Um, so that's a very long way of answering. Yes, there are some things we cannot change about the system right now, but that is not the only space in which we exist, right? So, so let's continue exploring those alternative spaces. Thank you. Deirdre? So the question is, uh, how do you feel about the latest MSF research on quantifying uh, rough sleeping or homelessness, which you are, of course, an expert in. You have done a lot of research on this as well. Yeah, that, that is an interesting study. Probably the most tiring I've had to do 
in my 10 years as a researcher. And the full story of what happened behind the scenes of that study can be found in the sequel to The Art of Advocacy. So please get a copy of that. But I mean, uh, I, I do think it's very important. And we first started doing this study mainly because it's done as a matter of routine in many countries to count the number of rust sleepers. But we didn't even have the number in Singapore. We didn't know. How can you make policy if you don't know how many people you need to serve? How? Uh, I didn't understand. Um, and of course, part of it was I just wanted to know, right? Every researcher is a, is a bit of a busybody, right? You just want to know. So I just wanted to know. Uh, it's important to know. And, 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 and I, I, from anecdotes and so on, right? And from kind of sensing this, this domain, I very quickly learned that it was a sensitive area to study. So there's a reason why the first study on homelessness only happened in 2019. That was not the first year that people were homeless. There is a reason why it happened that way, right? I mean, I mean there are research-based reasons, it's just very complex. Um, and then there are boring reasons like the way universities are designed these days, but nobody wants to hear that. <laughs> and Wally already knows. And then there are reasons of political sensitivity, right? Uh, it's always a bit of a risky study to study an issue which politicians may, or policymakers may feel uh, is a critique of the home ownership system. It's almost as if every homeless person you spot is an indictment of our model of home ownership. Of course it isn't, right? Nobody thinks that way. Nobody sees one homeless person and says, aha, proof, HDB failed. <laughs> Nobody thinks that, right? But when you're nervous, you're nervous and, and we can't control that. So uh, we did do that study. I felt it was important to do. It was extremely difficult to do. But to jump forward to the conclusion, I'm quite happy with the outcome. Right? which is from a place where we weren't able to talk about homelessness properly. And to be honest, there were many times during the process I wasn't sure the study would be completed. I really wasn't sure. Until the day we launched the report, I wasn't sure that something might happen or not. I just didn't know. Right? Uh, but it did get done. And just a few months ago, the government published a report from their first count of homelessness. Of course, I have my views about how they did it, but I don't want to look ungracious. So I would say that uh, I think it's an important achievement for advocacy to move from a place where we cannot talk about it to them having to acknowledge it and then to them replicating the study and committing to doing it. So let's all watch how they do it, right? But I think I want to thank all the volunteers like ourselves who did it. This was a study that an individual could not have done. Uh, that was a huge accomplishment on, on all your parts. Yeah. So um, I, I think you answered it. The study wouldn't have happened without your prior study. Uh, yeah, I think I can, I can say that with a straight face. Yeah, I think it, it's a bit like toothpaste, you know, that once it's out of the tube, you can't really put it back. So when you reach a point of the discussion, you can no longer go back to it. There was a long time where we were trapped in semantics, definitional squabbles. Really homeless? Do they own a flat? Maybe they might own a flat. Maybe they know somebody who might own a flat. There was, it was always a really homeless question. I even was asked that if we were doing the count, how can you be sure they didn't just fall asleep on a bench in a park? Maybe they had a good night out with friends and were drunk. What if, what if, like really homeless? We were trapped in that for such a long time. But I think we got past that. And on hindsight, I'm so glad we did. We published in late 2019, November 2019, I think. And then of course, a few months later, what happened? The world stopped, right? And then homelessness exploded because public spaces were out of bounds. But at that point, 
journalists no longer had to worry worry about oh are they really homeless? Can we really publish these stories? It was full steam. The shelters were at capacity. Journalists helped. They made an open call for businesses and so on to open their premises to homeless people. I'm glad we got past that that meaningless, unconstructive squabble, uh, so that when the crisis hit, we could do the work that really matters. I think on that, unless there are any other questions or comments, okay. I think on that uh, pause. You ended already. Oh, okay. Is there a question? Oh, no. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> So on that very positive note, right, I think I, we should bring this session to a close. And I think, and also just now I said on the government side, change is impossible until it happens. But I think a lot of activists or people in society also, we are sort of crippled by a sense of hopelessness. right? And I always say when we lose hope, we lose life itself. right? Because what is there to live for if we lose hope? Right? So there must always be hope that things can change. And I think your study, I think so as well, and I'm glad you didn't uh, take the route of uh, false humility and say, no, I don't know what are the other factors, but you say, yes, my study caused it, and that should be doing, academic should be doing that more, and I, I agree with you, that wouldn't have happened. The discourse on inequality wouldn't have happened without uh, Prof. Pio's book. Um, the discussions on racial privilege wouldn't have happened without a certain paper and the rebuttal to that paper, and um, I and I think when you look back, right, five years ago or ten years ago, you you would never have imagined that these things would would take place, these discourses and resulting in policy change. So I I really would like to thank you not only for being here and it was a great session. I'm sure everyone agrees, uh, but also for all the work you do in pushing the boundaries on homelessness and so on. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Let's get this book. Uh, how much is this? Twenty-five. dollars. Is that a discount for live audience? Uh, uh, it's cheaper. It's cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> Very good salesperson. Already discounted. <laughs> okay. So thank you so much and good night, everyone. Thank you. Um, yes. So I would like to thank.